All right, well, we are in the book of Genesis, and we're coming to the end of it. Got a couple of more weeks, and we'll be done. But we are in chapters 46 and 47. The title is Set Apart in the Sojourn. So Israel is going to make their way, Jacob and his descendants are going to make their way down into Egypt. And when they get there, the famine is going to become really severe. But Israel is going to remain blessed, and they're going to be strengthened, actually, even during this time. And then we're going to see that while there, God works in such a way to make certain that Israel remains separate from Egypt, and she doesn't just kind of get consumed into this you know, large, powerful country and that culture, which was so, um, it was a very clear, dominant culture. And how is God going to keep his people separate and identified And we'll begin to see uh, pieces of this. And of course, as you move through the book of Exodus, of course, persecution is one thing that led to that as well. But let's go ahead and begin reading in verses 1 through 7. And we see that God confirms to Jacob that he should move to Egypt. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. That's down in the south. And that's right before you would exit the promised land. And offered sacrifices to God the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father, Jacob, their little ones and their wives, and the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. So we read here that Um, Jacob is a little concerned. Actually, what we read is that God said, do not be afraid, which, of course, you say that to somebody who's what? Afraid. So Jacob is dealing with fear, and the fear is that of heading down south. If I go out of the promised land, I go down to Egypt, what does that mean? Is that okay? Do you approve, Lord? And so he he worshiped the Lord. He made sacrifices to the Lord because, remember, his his great-grandfather, his grandfather, I. Jacob, Abraham, sorry, um, he went down there, and that ended up being an, a, a problematic venture. Uh, Sarah ends up taking a handmaiden by the name of Hagar. Hagar ends up being one who gives birth uh, to Ishmael, fathered by Abraham, and this creates tension in the home. It creates hostility between the two uh, sons of Isaac and Ishmael, and this is a problem. And of course, Jacob's aware of this. Now, when Isaac was in a time of famine, um, the Lord said to him, do not go down to Egypt. So he's got these things in his mind, and kind of on the negative side of Egypt, right? You know, Father Abraham went down there, not so good. Dad was warned not to go down there. I'm going down there. I want to see my son Joseph. I mean, emotionally, it's an easy decision for him, right? To head down there and be reunited with his son who he thought was dead for the last 22 years. I mean, I don't even know what that kind of emotion must have been like. But he wants to go get connected with them. But he realizes, 
You know, is this the will of the Lord? Is this a good thing? So he, he, he pauses and he waits there in Beersheba. Because once he moves from Beersheba, you're out into the wilderness and you're leaving the promised land. Remember that God had spoken so clearly to Jacob. Because this is, will not be his first time outside of the promised land. He spent time up north in Padam Aram with uh, Uncle Laban where he got married. And he got married again. And had his children. And then the Lord spoke so clearly to him. You need to go back to the promised land. There I'm going to make you a great nation. There you're going to inherit that land. It's going to be your land. And I'm going to bring this deliverer. That will lift the curse that has come in the garden. Because of man's sin. It is through you Jacob and your family. That the deliverer is going to come. That's a big deal. This is the salvation for mankind. And he's thinking about all of this. And part of the Abrahamic covenant was the land promise. And so if he goes down out of the land, is the Lord okay with it? Now at this point in time in Scripture, there's no commandment that says, do not go down to Egypt. You can find that later. I think you can read Isaiah chapter 31, where the Lord rebukes them for going down to Egypt. But here, at this time in history, there is no direct commandment that says, do not go down to Egypt. The commandment is positive. Stay in the land and be fruitful and multiply. So how does he deal with this? And this is kind of what brings him to the place of sacrifice and the Lord speaking to him and saying, it's okay, Jacob, to go. But I want to make a distinction. What is not happening is some clear commandment of God that is given in Scripture that says, Thou shalt not, or you shall, and, then he, and there's a, a blatant disregard for it. This is a tradition. This is a history that he's seen in his family, both positive and negative, about the, the land. And so he's wondering, should I stay? Is it okay to go? Um, because if you look at this and say, well, I guess, you know, um, I can do this with any commandment of, of, of the Word of God. I can The commands in Scripture, I can look at and I can evaluate them. I can determine, hey, this is a, a reasonable thing for me to do. And going down to Egypt was good for Jacob and me living in sexual immorality or living with my boyfriend or girlfriend. This is okay. I think God's given me a special exemption. That's a wrong application of this passage. That's a wrong application. God's Word is not changing here. What's happened is there's a tradition that he has walked in. There's a, 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 an expected norm within them. But God says, listen, I'm, going, I'm doing this. I'm the one that's taking you down there. I'm going with you. Right? I'm going with you. I'm not, you're not going to go on your own. I'm going with you, Jacob. And I'm going to make you a great nation down there. I'm going to sustain you physically in the famine. And what we find out is that they're going to remain a separate and a distinct people. So, you know, tradition, what is the application? Well, you know, um, within your family, you may have a tradition of how the Christian faith has been walked out that is not necessarily a scriptural thing, but it's just, hey, my family, this is how we, we walked out the commands of God. This is how we live. These are the things we did. These are the things that we didn't do. And they're more like the, I guess, maybe the liberties. They're the, the safeguards that are put up in your life. And, and that's what you grew up with. Or we can think about the wider church body of Calvary Chapel Lynchburg or the Lynchburg Community Church, right? How we function or even the church in America or the world. What are the things that we do that are not necessarily a direct commandment of Scripture, but they are something that um, is a tradition in which we walk in? These would be the application 
that you could go and begin to take a look at. Um, tradition is not scripture, but tradition is not insignificant either within the body of Christ. Now, if our traditions become based upon you know, our own kind of legalistic approaches or on the opposite end of it, if uh, it becomes a thing in which I, this is a tradition we do to indulge myself, then clearly there's something wrong. None of that is going on here. So he, breaking with the tradition, says, Lord, what is it that you want? And he says, go to Egypt, I'm with you. Head on down there. And so as he goes, he's going to be made a great nation. He's going to be sustained physically. And he is going to remain separate. But the commands of the Lord, don't use this passage to say, well, I can evaluate you know, the commands of the Lord. Because that command to not go down to Egypt happens later. All right, so... This is not a chance for us to wonder through and pray through. And I know this is a very popular trend within the church right now. It's like, well, you know, a lot of these commandments and stuff, these are things that were done, you know, before. And this is, you know, Bible. But it was Bible was written a long time ago. So now we can kind of, in our present circumstances, figure out what we want to do and how we're going to do this. No, we don't. I mean, read the book of Revelation. Read of the warning against changing the Word of God. We are to obey the Word of God, and it is to be the thing that leads us and guides us. It's our safety. It's our protection. It is our blessing to obey the commands of the Lord. Well, don't you think things have changed, you know, with all this going on in the world and the, the things that we know and understand? Well, listen, to, for, to, to agree with that is to agree that God lacks forethought. That God couldn't anticipate what was going to come to humanity. And a lot of the things that we're dealing with in the church today, the church has never, or even in, forget the church, even in culture, you know, has never even been thought of or walked out in, in terms of a mentality and a thinking, let alone the church who has not done these things. And so are we now to stand here and look at the Word of God and say, well, here we are, you know, in, in 2021, and these are the enlightenments and the understandings we have. Of course, it disagrees with the Word of God, so I'm going to set it aside. Well, I'm not going to set the whole thing aside. Well, what part are you going to set aside? How, how do you know what part to set aside? Well, I want to set apart the side about sexual immorality. Okay, you want to do that. Why do you want to do that? Why don't we set apart the, the part about Jesus rising from the dead? Because at this point, if we're going to open our Bible, and we're going to say, uh, check, I'll take that. Uh, no, I don't want that. You know, we'll cross that out. Who is the arbitrator of what's truth at that point? It is no longer God. And it is no longer his word. You or me, I'm not doing it though, we have become the arbitrator of what's truth. I don't, I don't rest on the authority of this. I'm resting on the authority of this. And what I think and what I feel and what culture has to say. So if you're going to start taking things out of the Bible and saying, I don't have to obey this commandment, I don't have to obey that a commandment, you, you know, you're doing that on a moral level. What about on a doctrinal level? That Jesus was born of a virgin. I mean, I, on what basis can you do that? Well, I don't believe, you know, it matters if you, how you live sexually. Well, do you think it matters that Jesus was, you know, died on the cross and rose from the dead? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian. But can you see the inconsistency of this? And that it's you, it's us that become the arbitrator of truth and revelation, not God and his word that he's given to us. I'm not prepared to go there, and I hope you're not prepared to go there. You start to pull the thread of, well, I don't believe this part of the Bible. Where does 
it stop? Well, I never would do that. Well, what about your children? And what about the next generation? What about that person that, you, that you know, looks to you? Uh, you know, you, you're going to pull this and you're only going to go that far. You're undermining the word of God. But, you know, Christianity is still intact. Please understand that what happens is then the next disciple and then the next disciple begins to pull and pretty much you end up in a place where you don't even, I mean, it's like the dark ages. You don't even have the gospel of grace anymore. The Bible's lost. It's not translated any longer. Let's not act like these things have not happened in the history of the church. They have. And so we must cling to the word of God and what it has to say. You have the hope of heaven. You like that one. Well, why do you keep that one and not... You know, the others. See, it becomes an arbitrary thing. In verses 8 through 27, we're not going to read all these verses, but we see a record of those who traveled to Egypt. I mean, you get the summary statement of those verses. It goes through the sons and the grandsons of Jacob. But in verse 26, it says, All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob went, uh, who went to Egypt were 70. So you had those that were there already. You had those that came. Um, obviously, um, we count Jacob, Manasseh, and Ephraim. We come to 69. So there's some other name that's mentioned. Or is in the mind of the author that we don't know. Maybe it's Dina. I don't know who that other person is. Um, in Acts, Exodus 1.5 and Acts 7.14, we read that there were 75. And that, we get to 75 because he begins to count grandsons, okay? So our great-grandsons. And you can find those in First Chronicles 7.14 and following. So we don't have a, a clear understanding of all the names that were involved. I mean, we get the majority of it, but you have 66, and then you have 70. And you have 75, and this is just broadening out a uh, more descendants of Joseph is how you get there. Let's keep rolling. Verse 28 through 34, a very tender section where Jacob is reunited with Joseph. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck. And wept on his neck a good while. I mean, they were, there was just all kinds of emotion flowing. 22 years of separation. 22 years of thinking your son is dead. And now he's reunited and he comes rolling in in a chariot. I mean, you, uh, the emotions of this scene are just off the charts. Verse 30, And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. He's like, man... I, this is, I'm complete. Then Joseph said to his brothers, to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks with uh, their flocks, their herds and all they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation that you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, and we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Welcome to Egypt. They think you stink. I mean, that's kind of, 
maybe even a little more intense than that. But it's like they don't want to deal with it. They're they're not going to want to hang out with you. But what I want, and we'll come back to this whole point again as they actually talk to, uh, to Joseph. So just kind of put a pin in that thought of the abomination piece and how they're going to be separate. We'll come back when they actually talk to Joseph. But here I want to talk about the, the, you know, the joining together of the family, being reunited together with Jacob and Joseph, and then all of these other people came together. It is a hard thing, right, when we are separated from family and friends. And it's, it's a beautiful thing when we come together. You know, I'm, I'm you know, we, we're, my um, last child, my uh, oldest daughter is about to get married here in a few weeks. And um, I'm looking forward to it because on top of it being a, a wonderful event to celebrate, um, all of my kids and their wives and their spouses and all my grandkids other family are going to come. You know, it's like it's, it's at these weddings and sometimes it's funerals when all the family gets together. And this is just a purely joyous occasion, though. And I can't wait for it. I'm looking forward to being connected and reunited for, even for a little while. It's going to be crazy in our house. It's going to be, man, don't come by our house. It's going to be nuts. But I'm looking forward to that being reunited. And that's nothing compared to what these have gone through, being separated For these 22 years. But my mind began to ponder about another another family gathering where we're going to be reunited together with our loved ones. And that's when the Lord returns. You know, there's many of you have people in heaven. Maybe you have a son, maybe you have a daughter, maybe mother or father, brother or sister, somebody you just love, a grandparent. And they, they were a people of faith, they trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so therefore when they died, they went to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And so they're there present with Christ. And there is a day coming where you, if you have faith in Christ, will be reunited with them. You're going to be connected with them again. Now listen, you know, sometimes the pain of that loss is so great, it's hard to even think about seeing Jesus. It's almost like seeing the family member seems like more of a priority and more of importance in our heart. We know in our mind it shouldn't be. But this is what's going to happen when you get to heaven. If you see your family member over there and you're like going to them, they're going to go, "Mm mm-mm, right there, look at that guy. Go worship him. Look at Jesus because he is the number one priority of heaven. And, and you know, uh, if they was to be the other way around where they were waving their hands and like, come over here and say, you're going to have to wait. I'm going to go see him first. I'm going to have a connection with him. So getting, the, the time when we go to heaven, the first and most greatest blessing is being united with the Lord. I mean, can you imagine we sang about, you know, the scars that he bears in his body. And how it was to set us free. It was our liberty. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to look upon Jesus? And we know he's going to have those scars. He had the scars after the resurrection. And we read in Revelation that he was a lamb as, as one that had been slain. So he's going to bear the scars in his body. And as we look at those, we're going to know that was my freedom. That was the price that was paid. How amazing that moment's going to be. But it's also going to be exciting to be gathered together. And I think the Lord's going to have a big smile on his face when he sees us. And I think every day when somebody passes into eternity and they're reunited with their loved one um, who's gone before them, I think the Lord looks at it and he loves it. 
Again, uh, you know, as a dad, I love it when I hear I'm talking with any one of my kids like, yeah, I was talking to, you know, my brother or my sister or whoever. I love the fact that my kids are talking to each other even though they're out of the house, right? As a dad, I'm glad that they love each other and, and that they spend time together and they visit each other's homes. I love that. As a dad, I love to see my kids coming together. And when we get to heaven and there's that embrace and there's that joy of generations coming together, you have to know that the Lord is going to be so pleased with that love because we've been commanded to love each other. He created family. That we would love that, that joining together is certainly going to be wonderful. I know some say, hey, when we get to heaven, you know, we're not going to know our loved ones. I don't know where people get that from in Scripture. Because the Bible doesn't say that at all, anywhere. As a matter of fact, we see the exact opposite. Is that like Moses and Elijah, after they had died, they were with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the disciples knew who they were, which means this. They maintained their identity, and they could know their identity. So if you are like, man, I don't know if I can't know my family when I get to heaven. I just don't know what it's going to be like. Let's take that off the list of concerns. You're going to see them. You're going to know them. You're going to love them. But you're also going to have a wonderful relationship with everybody else that's there. But um, what a beautiful day it's going to be. There's a church. Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a church there in um, the New Testament at Thessalonica. And they had seen a lot of people pass away. A lot of people had passed. They had died. We're going to read that they were called... Uh, it's referred to as falling asleep. But read this with me. I want you to see it. It's an important passage. It's the rapture passage. One of the rapture passages. It says, But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. It doesn't even call it death. Death is negative. Fall asleep is not. It's nice when you fall asleep fast, isn't it? Versus staying up at 3 o'clock in the morning trying to solve the world's problems and you can't and you know, it's, it's nice when you get a full night's sleep and you're like, ah, oh, that's great. And that's how the Bible refers to a Christian dying, is falling asleep. So I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? All right, well, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, right, and be raptured up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall all, will always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What do we do with the hope that I'm going to be reunited with loved ones who have gone in the faith. I, I comfort myself and I pass on comfort to others. This is how Job sought to find comfort after all of his think, ten children had died. He says, if a man dies, will he go on living? Because if he thought he would see his kids again, that was going to make it a whole lot easier. When David's firstborn son um, of Bathsheba had, was sick, he was in sackcloth and ashes, he was fasting, he was mourning. As soon as his son died, he dressed himself, he ate, he washed his face. And they're like, we thought it would have been worse when he died than when he was, um, uh, worse when he died than when he was alive. He says, well, listen, I know 
that he's not going to come to me. He's not coming back. He says, but I'm going to go to him. Against that hope of being reunited. Mary and Martha, right? They were mourning over the death of Lazarus. As Jesus seeks to comfort them, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he will die, shall live. Again, the same emphasis as is here. The hope of heaven and eternal life is how we find comfort when we are grieving and there is sorrow in our heart of those who have passed away. But you got to be willing to let that comfort come. Obviously, there should be a sorrow. There is appropriate to have grief and sorrow when a loved one dies. But as it says in verse 13, the sorrow and the grief that we have as believers is not the same as others because we've got hope. We're going to be reunited. You're going to see them again. And it's going to be a joyous occasion meeting them there in the air with the Lord. He is the centerpiece of it all. But there is going to be a, re, a, a reuniting that takes place. And that's, that's Paul's whole point here. You're, you're, they're going to be in heaven and you're going to be there too. It makes complete sense that that would be, mean there's a reunion that's taking place. So if you have lost somebody that has gone in faith, comfort yourself with this hope. You're going to see them again. And it's like, you know, we, we grieve for the loss of fellowship with them. But we don't grieve for them in their current state. They're in the presence of the Lord. I mean, if you could pray and bring them back, they probably would be mad at you. Yeah, I mean, um, Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, Rebecca and myself attended Calvary Costa Mesa, and he was a pastor there, and I remember him saying, he goes, I want to tell you something. If I'm ever up on this stage and I'm preaching and I die, don't you dare come and lay hands on me and try and, you know, raise me from the dead, because I'm going to punch the first person I see. <laughs> he says, I, if I'm in the presence of the Lord, leave me alone. I want to stay there. Because this understanding of the glorious nature of it. So Jacob is reunited with Joseph. And maybe that touched some heartstrings in your own life of being separated from a person who's gone in the faith. You're going to be reunited with them again. And it's going to be a big time party when we're all gathered together. And um, it's a hope that we have that we should hold on to. Well, as we keep on moving into chapter 47, verses 1 through 12, Jacob settles in the land of Goshen. Um, and this is where they interacts with Pharaoh. And so he comes down and uh, Jacob kind of gives the account of all that has taken place. He says, you know, um, you know, verse three, what is your occupation? He says, well, you know, we're shepherds. We're an abomination. And um, this is what we've always done. But he doesn't sugarcoat it. We are shepherds. This is who we are. This is what we've always done. We, took, we have no more pastures up in Canaan. Um, so we've made our way down here. So Pharaoh says, listen, you have the best of the land. Go to Goshen. Uh, take care of your livestock there. And that was the place to be. And verse 6, Pharaoh speaks to Joseph and says, um, now among your fathers and brothers, if there's anybody competent, let them take care of my livestock. So it's not that they hated livestock. They just didn't like those that took care of their livestock. And they didn't mind the meat. They didn't mind the wool. But they just didn't, they didn't care for the people that took care of them. And so when, they have asked, when they're asked the question, what do you do? Who are you? 
They come out with it. We are shepherds. They weren't going to hide it. They weren't going to sugarcoat it. What this ends up doing practically is it pushes them all together collectively into one area, which is exactly what the Lord wants. And because they were shepherds, there was not going to be intermarrying among the Egyptians, or at least not much of it, because you're not going to be giving your son or your daughter over to somebody you think is an abomination. So I had a way of keeping them distinct and separate. There's a couple of things I want us to talk about here. Um, number one is, are we that clear and are we that loud with who we are as followers of Jesus Christ? Are, are we quick to say, listen, my family's a shepherd family. I, my, my, I, you know, I've got a great shepherd that I follow. His name is Jesus. And I follow him with my whole heart. I, I, I cling to the word of God. I believe in it. And I want to follow and live my life according to the word of God. That's what touches my life. That's how I live. Because when you do that, it, it is so much easier to be distinct and, and separate than when you begin to say, you know, who are you? Well, you know, I'm just, you know, I do this and I do that. But your, your Christianity kind of gets pushed out a little, little bit. It's put, now, if they ask you directly, are you a Christian? Uh, yes, I am a Christian. Are you one of the born-again Christians? I am one of the born-again Christians. I'm, I'm one of those that's in love with Jesus, and I believe even in his word. Making a clear statement like that of who we are in our connection with Christ, first and foremost, is our privilege. It's our blessing that he would even allow us to name his name. Okay, can you imagine if, if this being the case, the Lord's like, I don't call you servants, I call you what? I call you friends. You're my friend. And to be able to make that kind of a statement, it is our blessing, it is our privilege to have that kind of connection with him. Why would we be silent? Why would we try to hide that? Well, because may not go well at my job, or it may not go well in my peer group, or it may not go well in my neighborhood, or it may not go well just overall. People like Christians less and less. I don't know that we've risen to the you know, level of an abomination in their opinion, but it's certainly the view that people in our country have of Christians is not what it was 20 years ago, and it's certainly not what it was 50 years ago. It's changing. And I think there's a couple of things that's going to happen with that. If there's not a revival, that's going to continue to get worse and worse. Are you ready for whatever that means? Are you ready to rise to the level of being an abomination and people looking and saying, you're a follower of Jesus Christ? You're connected with that group of people? Listen, don't be ashamed of it. But you know what's going to happen to the church as that increases, as it has happened everywhere throughout the world, throughout time, when the church is persecuted? It makes the church come together, doesn't it? Because if they don't want us, then we know where we are wanted. We have an incredible blessing and a privilege to be in the country where we are, to have the freedom that we are, and to be able to move you know, in, in jobs and in culture and all the other things. But if that ever changes, I hope that you're prepared to come out with it and say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not afraid of this. I'm not afraid of your reaction. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 17, 
we see the second point I want to draw from this. First point is stand out and be bold and loud with who you are. Secondly, remember we're a holy people and we're to be set apart. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here it is, verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1. Therefore, having these promises of relationship, right, of communion. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We want to be holy. We want to look like Jesus. Why wouldn't I want to be holy? Being holy means I look like the Lord. And nobody looks better than Jesus. Nobody is of a higher character Nobody is of a kinder spirit or a generous heart than the Lord himself. Why wouldn't I want to be holy? Well, you know, all these calls to holiness just sounds a little bit like legalism. Well, you need to get new definitions because that's not the case. Holiness means being like Jesus. And don't you want to be like Jesus? And this is how you do it. You understand your connection with Him, the fellowship with Him, and you realize that you are a called-out, separate, distinct people group, the church of Jesus Christ. And you are to live separate, not isolated, but we're to live separated from them. Peter made this mistake on the night that Jesus was betrayed. We read that he followed the Lord. Does anybody know how that verse goes? He followed the Lord at a what? At a distance. Jesus was arrested, he's following behind, but he's at a distance. And then he comes into the camp, and as he's there, Jesus is going through trials. Some servant girl says, I know who you are, you're one of his disciples. And he says, I am not. He denies who his people are. And he does this repeatedly, and he ends up, of course, fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus that he would deny him before the rooster had crowed. And he did this because he was unwilling to be separate and to be distinct. He wanted to blend in. He wanted to warm himself at the fire of these people. There's nothing wrong with being warmed, but where you want to get warm, where you're wanting to get warmed matters. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, are to find our love and our support and an identity of purpose amongst each other and in Christ Jesus. That's the plan. That's the Lord's plan, is that we would be separate and distinct. Not better than, we're not. We're not better than. That's not what this is saying. It's just like, you've been saved, now live like saved people. And this is what he's calling to. I hope if there's an area in your life where you need to come out and you need to be separate, that you will do that then that I will do that. We'll continually live our lives of distancing ourselves from those things which are against the Lord. Now we're to be a light in the world. We're to be a witness. We are to be um, those that are doing good in the places where we live. And yet we must be careful 
that we don't allow those in our culture to begin to influence how we live. In verses 13 through 26, I'm mean, just going to summarize that really, this, this whole section in just a couple of seconds here. It speaks of the four stages of famine that are going to go on in the land of Egypt. Verses 13 and 14 is stage one, and this is all the money, all the cash that they have on hand is used to buy grain. Second stage, verses 15 through 17, is they have to use um, all of their farming equipment. They have to sell their livestock. They can't take care of them. And so all livestock is now used. So it's not just the cash on hand. It's the goods that they own. They're selling things off. In verses 18 through 22, it's the third stage of the famine. And the people sell their land. And they move into the cities to Pharaoh for grain. Then the fourth stage, um, the people actually kind of say, all right, we'll work the land for you. So it turns into a feudal system. And um, they have to pay 20% of the proceeds of their field to Pharaoh. Now, you're like, well, what do the people feel about this? Well, verse 25 says, So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So what Joseph did was they didn't view it as burdensome and harsh. They saw this as a blessing, and they ended up paying a 20% tax. Could you imagine if we only had to pay 20% taxes completely, and that was it? So, yeah. It's worse to be an American tax-wise than it was to be in, under Joseph's rule and Joseph's control. So that, that's what happens. The famine just worsens and worsens. And we close here in verses 27 through 31, where Jacob never allows Egypt to become his home. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Everybody else is losing everything, and yet God is blessing these people, just as he told Abraham he would do. Verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. How old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery? 17 years old. 22 years apart from dad, and then the last 17 years, Jacob's 130, he's going to live to be 147. The last 17 years of his life, of, jo- of Jacob's life, was with Joseph. So you have these kind of two you know, chunks of 17 years and this separation of 22. I don't know what you do with that. It's just kind of interesting to see how that worked out. And Jacob lived in the land for Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if you have found favor, And if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly. This is how they make a vow and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. This is not my home. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the bed, on the head of the bed. And so he went to be with the the Lord. Jacob, although he was down in Egypt for these last 17 years, he realized this is not my home. And, you know, even in chapter 46, as we began, it talked about how there was going to be a sojourning that took place um, down here. And he was just passing through. Sojourner or pilgrim is the idea. It's not my home. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, 
which war against your soul. We are to live like people that are just passing through. Um, I'm sure most of you have been on a plane, and therefore most of you have had experienced layovers. When you're, when you're booking your ticket, at least if you're traveling with me, the one thing I'm looking for is the shortest layover possible. And when I get on that layover, I don't ever say, we've made it, you know, into this place where there's overpriced goods and everybody's stressed out. I mean, there's no joy in the terminal of an airport, right? It's like, oh, kids, all right, here we are. You know, I know you thought we were going to Disney World, but this is really the big show, you know. Go get one of your nasty hot dogs for 10 bucks. It's, it's, you know, we're passing through. It's a necessary part of our travels to go through and have layovers. Jacob realized Egypt was just a layover. The promised land, that's where I want to be. That's where I want my bones to be put. And in a similar way, we take this and apply this. We are passing through, and this thing called life on earth is just a layover. You're only in the terminal airport. Don't make a big deal about it. Just do what you got to do to get to that next destination, right? To the place that God has chosen for us to dwell, to dwell and live forever. That city whose maker and builder is God, right? We're going to a place that the Lord has established. And in the meantime, we are to live as sojourners or pilgrims. Don't set up shop in the terminal airport. Do what you have to do to, to live this life. You, you know, you're, you're going to school. You're working on your career. You're raising a family. That's fine. All of those things are great. Do them unto the glory of the Lord, but don't allow them to define who you are or what your purpose is. And if those things become all you do, you are too invested. You're too invested. Another verse, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If, you, if then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. You know, your mind is to be fixed on heaven, and you free your mind up only to do what is necessary here and now. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. One more verse, Philippians 3.20. 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, not America, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Jacob never allowed Egypt to become his home. Don't allow this place to become your home. It's not your home. This is not where your citizenship is. And if we allow that job or that career or that, those hobbies or whatever to so take over our life that we can no longer have our minds set on heaven and seeking first the kingdom of God, then we, we must make adjustments. There's no person in heaven who has lived full on for the Lord that would advise you today, cool it for Jesus. It doesn't pay off. But I guarantee you there's plenty that are in heaven that if they could speak to you right now would say, there's one thing that matters. Set your mind on him. Set your mind on the things that he has for your life. Live for that. You know, it's sad. Many, many people walk away from the Christian faith saying, it didn't work for me. That's not, that's not the case. What happens is people walk away 
having tampered with the kingdom of God, having touched it here and there. They tasted of it. They ate of it here and there, but they did not commit themselves fully to it as we are instructed. And here's the problem. When you are half-hearted in Christ and for the kingdom of God and his purposes, you satisfy your conscience enough to say you tried it, but you haven't committed yourself enough to realize it. So be careful. The thing about half-hearted Christianity is that you can walk away thinking you tried it rather than being full-on and seeking first the kingdom of God and pouring yourself entirely into it. This is what the scripture says, is that if we're going to seek God, that we should do it with our what? Our whole heart. Everything about us. And so keep that pilgrim mentality intact. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth that teaches us and instructs us on how to live. And we have these lessons, these physical, practical lessons from the Old Testament scriptures that mirror how we should be living spiritually. And so, Lord, we pray that you would touch our hearts, you would move in our lives.